Welcome to Heartland Church. It is our prayer that as you listen to the following message, you would experience the heart of God for your life. For more information about our ministry and available resources, visit us on the web at heartlandchurchonline.com. Now, let's join this week's service already in progress. All right, let's get into the Word this morning. If you want to turn with me to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. Or I'm sorry, Luke chapter 2. This is the first time I have preached in several weeks. As a matter of fact, in the last 10 weeks, I've only preached three weeks. Between being sick and vacation and traveling and other speakers coming in. So we'll get out around 2 o'clock today. And uh, No, I'm just kidding. I'm, I, I don't have a long message. matter of fact, I've changed my message from what I was going to preach on this morning. We were, we'll probably look next week. Uh, you know, that, that, that's a big if. There's a lot going to happen between now and next week. But what I was going to preach on this morning, we're going to look at the angel's role in Christmas. You can see throughout the Christmas story all of this angelic involvement. The fact is, if you were to pull the angelic out of Christmas, the whole thing would have caved in. None of it would have happened. So we'll, maybe we'll look at that next week. I think it's an important subject for us to look at. But what I want to look at this morning instead is why Jesus came as a baby. You ever wondered that? Why did Jesus come as a little baby? I mean, if God needed a man to die, why couldn't he have just arrived as a full-grown man and got this thing over with? Well, there are theological reasons why Jesus came as a baby, and we want to look at those this morning. So if you look with me at Luke chapter 2, I'm going to read out of the NIV, and we're going to read a good portion of the passage. We're going to read, read down to where I was going to preach from this morning, but I want to focus on the first part. So Luke chapter 2, verse 1, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken in the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house in the line of David. He went there to register Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Verse 8. And there were shepherds living in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks by night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were terrified. Whereas the King James Version says, they were sore afraid. Verse 10. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is, the, he is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angels, with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest in heaven and on earth, peace to, to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem to see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off, found Mary and Joseph, and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard about it were amazed at what the shepherds had said to them. But Mary treasured up these things in her heart and pondered them. 
The shepherds glorified, the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had seen and heard, which they had just been told about. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you for this story. And Lord, I thank you that it's more than a fairy tale. It's not a myth. It's historical fact. But more than that, it's a spiritual reality. Jesus, we thank you that you left the glories of heaven to take on the form of a human baby. Father, we thank you. You were willing to send your son, not just to inhabit a human body, but to be tortured of men and die so that you could redeem us back to yourself. So, Lord, we ask that you would enlighten your word. Lord, give us understanding. Lord, we ask that your word would encourage us and change us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go back up here to, uh, just want to make a comment on verse 7 here. It says, and Mary gave birth to her firstborn, a son. It says he was her firstborn. That's a very significant phrase in Scripture. Back in the book of Leviticus, it says that the firstborn son is the first sign of a father's strength. In other words, a a man's ability to produce children were a sign of strength. And the firstborn son was the first sign of a father's strength. And Jesus was the first sign of the father's strength. And by that, he would produce many, many more sons. But Jesus was the firstborn. So we need to ask ourselves, why did Jesus come as a baby? The fact is, there is a very clear line from the manger of Christmas to the cross of Easter. There's a very clear connection between these two. You can even see it in the gift that was given by the wise men. Now, we we sing the song, We Three Kings. They weren't really kings. They were king makers. They were people who were uh, assigned to... Really, you, you couldn't be a king in Persian culture without these wise men, these magi. It was short for magician. For these magi to crown you the king. They had to sign off on someone being king. And so when the, the magi showed up in Israel and said, where is the king of the Jews? It gave Herod some heartburn. Because he's thinking, I am the king of the Jews. And it wasn't too, too much earlier in, in history that there had been a war with Persia and they were threatening the throne that Herod sat upon. So when they come and ask who's the king of the Jews, it caused uh, real concern. And they came with gifts and they, they, they gave gifts to Jesus, the one of which was myrrh. Now myrrh was for burial of, uh, of people in Jewish funerals. They, they would use it to pack the, the body in. And so it was a strange gift to give at a baby shower when, to give myrrh, something that would be used for burial. But even that was a foreshadowing. It was really the cross, the, the shadow of the cross casting its shadow over the manger. There is a clear connection between Jesus' birth and his death. The fact is, Jesus started our redemption by his birth. No more could God ever forsake man. God couldn't say, I'm going to rid myself of the human race and start over. Because in the birth of Jesus, Jesus took on human flesh and he became one of us. So if he were to forsake man, he would have to forsake himself. It's an amazing thing. So we look at redemption culminating in the cross, and rightly so. But if it culminated in the cross, it began in his birth, where God took on human flesh. He, he became an embryonic 
uh, fetus in the, the womb of a woman so that he could take on human flesh. It's an amazing thing. And so when, when Jesus did that, he eternally wed himself to humanity. And lest we think that this was a temporary thing, a lot of times people look at Jesus as, you know, putting on an earth suit for 33 years and then he shed it and now he sits on the throne as fully God, no longer man. But the fact is, I, I believe it's First Peter or First Timothy, it might be Second Timothy. It says that we have one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. Now this is long after... Jesus' ascension to the throne, His resurrection and His ascension. And the Apostle Paul said that Jesus is still a man. So for time and eternity, God in the flesh, Jesus, took on human flesh and wed Himself, limited Himself to humanity. Now that's not to say He's not fully God, but He's fully man. It's an amazing thing that He would limit Himself to an earthly frame, but he did it so that he could make room for you and I, so that he could redeem us to himself. And so when Jesus took on human flesh, he began redemption, and God could never again say, I'm going to forsake man. He couldn't wash his hands of us. He had become one of us in order to redeem us to himself. And so Jesus had to be a man. He had to be a human being so that he could qualify to be our representative. The fact is, what theologians call the fall, or our, our fall into sin. All of humanity has fallen into sin. We were born in sin. Scripture says that God accounted all of us sinful so that He could account all of us righteous who would come in through faith in Jesus. We were all born in sin. And so Jesus had to come as a man to redeem us back to Himself. But he came as a baby so that he could go through the process. We were talking Wednesday night in our Bible study. We're, we're looking through Rome, uh, Ephesians, rather, chapter 4. And for the life of me, I don't know how we got off on this, this little rabbit trail. But uh, we, we were looking at how Jesus came as a man. And it wasn't good enough for him to be innocent. The fact is, Herod had it out for Jesus. We know from the story that Herod had made an edict that all the, ch all the male children under such and such an age were to be taken out, they were to be killed. And Joseph was warned in a dream from an angel to get out of that area and go to Egypt so that Jesus' life could be preserved. Why was it important that Jesus' life be preserved as a baby? If he had to die for our sins, why couldn't he just die as a baby and wrap this whole thing up and, and get things over sooner? Then we wouldn't wear crosses around our neck. We'd wear mangers around our neck. and we'd be, we'd be churches with little mangers on our steeple. Why was it that Jesus had to grow up and go through the process? Well, Hebrews chapter 2 says that Jesus learned obedience by the things he suffered. And then it goes on to say, and once made perfect. Well, this is Hebrews 5, three chapters later. It says, once made perfect, Jesus became the source of eternal salvation. Jesus had to be perfected. He was born as an innocent baby, but he died as a perfect man. Isaiah said, unto us a child is born, but unto us a son is given. In Roman-Grecian culture, there was a distinct difference between a child and a son. 
In Romans, where it talks about the spirit of sonship, the Holy Spirit being the spirit of sonship, some translations call it call the Holy Spirit the spirit of adoption. Because in Roman Grecian culture, children weren't adopted outside of the family and brought in. It wasn't a, a child that had a, a, a father that wasn't biologically their father. It was somebody that was born biologically of a father, but wasn't given the rights of a, of a son until he ate, reached the age of maturity. You see, a child, the Greek word technon is what we, we use for the word born born one or children of God. We're, when we get saved, when we surrender to Jesus by faith, when we place our faith in what he did for us at Calvary, we are born again. We're born ones. But we're not yet sons because we have to mature into sonship. So a child or a born one had the nature of the father. You see, when you were adopted into sonship, when you were adopted into the family of God, it wasn't that you have the nature of your original father and God just slapped a name on you because he has compassion on you. No, he put his nature inside of you. You become a child of God. You literally are a partaker of the divine nature, Peter says. But there's a difference between having the nature of God within you and having the character of God exuding from you. When you're, born of, when you're born again, you have the nature of God. You are partakers of the divine nature. I was sharing with the crowd uh, Wednesday night. When I got saved, I got radically saved. I, I met Jesus and I, I met him in a borrowed bedroom. I was a homeless alcoholic. And when I got saved, I'm telling you, all of a sudden, the two-dimensional cardboard uh, black and white world took on a third dimension. This third dimension, this spiritual reality, all of, these, all of a sudden became real to me. It was like the two dimensions took on a third dimension. There was music, there was color, there were butterflies. It was like a Disney movie. It was an amazing thing. All of a sudden I was aware of this spiritual realm. And the lady who led me to the Lord gave me money for a Bible and I went out and bought a keg with it. I had the nature of God within me, but I didn't yet have the character of God within me. I was still stuck in my old patterns of behavior. But that didn't make me any less saved in that moment. And so over time, the nature that I received by a gift began to take over my character and my behavior and my old habits, my old addictions began to fall away. Because the, the life of God within me as a seed form began to grow and overtake my nature. That's the Christian life. So we go from childhood to sonship. The Greek word for sons of God is a totally different word than the born ones, the technon. I think it's like hoesis or something like that. I don't know how you say it, but it, that's what it looks like in the Greek. It's a totally different thing, and it has to do with maturity. You see, the Romans and the Grecian people had a, something similar to the Jewish bar mitzvah, that there was a ceremony they would take you through, and you would be graduated into maturity. And once you were mature, then you had the full rights of a son. You, get, you were given a ring. You could use the family name. You could do business on behalf of the family. You had authority over the servants who once bossed you around when you were a kid because you were into maturity. It's the same idea with Jesus. Jesus was born innocent as a baby. It's an amazing thing. But it wasn't good enough for him simply to give an innocent life. He had to give a perfected life. And so Jesus, it says in Hebrews 5, was made perfect by the things he suffered. He went through every temptation, every trial that we've ever gone through, and he passed the test. 
I remember years ago, I was counseling a young drug addict and he was struggling and he, he blurted out, he said, I just, he said, I, I don't think Jesus really suffered like I have. He said, man, I've suffered for years. He only suffered for a few hours on a cross. And I looked at him thinking, dude, you don't understand. And I kind of moved away thinking lightning might strike. And uh, <laughs> no, God's more compassionate that. But, but he just didn't have any understanding that Jesus suffered throughout his 33 years. Because he was learning obedience by the things he suffered. That's not to say Jesus was ever disobedient. But he had to have choices because his character, the nature of God, stamped upon him as a human being. He, like us, was made in God's nature, made in God's image. And we lost that nature through the fall. So Jesus came as an innocent man. And that image of God stamped upon his nature, he had to develop into full fruition so he could become perfect. He had to pass every test, every situation you and I have ever been tempted with and every trial we've ever faced Jesus faced and came out on the victorious end of that thing and at the end it says that in in Philippians chapter 2 Jesus was obedient unto death even the death of the cross the final act of obedience the final the the seal upon his sonship what made him perfect was that final act of yielding to the father and dying on Calvary says he was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. The most cruel death that was ever orchestrated by man. And Jesus was made perfect and gave up the ghost. And so he was born a man. He was born a human being so he could be our representative. But he had to live and die as a full-grown man so that he could pay the price for our sins. It wasn't good enough that he just be innocent. He had to be perfected. It wasn't good enough that Jesus not do the bad things. He had to also do the good things. You see, the bad news is worse than we thought. And the good news is better than we thought. The bad news is that none of us can save ourselves. The bad news is that we are We are dead in our trespasses and sins. That it doesn't matter how good we are, we can never undo the fallenness of our nature. That we are, our fate is sealed, that hell is our destination unless we are born again. That's the bad news. It's worse than we thought. The fall had a greater effect than we thought. But the good news is better than we thought. That Jesus didn't only not do the bad things, he did the good things. He fulfilled all of righteousness. You may remember when Jesus came to be baptized, his cousin, John the Southern Baptist, was out baptizing. It was the Baptist, okay. He was, he was baptizing people in water, and Jesus shows up, and he presents himself to John to be baptized. And John said, no. He said, I'm not worthy to untie your sandals. And Jesus said, I must, the King James Version says in a very poetic way, I must needs fulfill all of righteousness. In other words, I've got to do everything that God would require of a righteous man. Why? Because he was undoing his sin? No. He was making up for ours. It wasn't just that he didn't do the bad things. Jesus was checking off every requirement that God had for man. He was living up to his potential. He was satisfying every desire that was within the heart of God when God, way back in Genesis, said, Let us make man in our own image. 
And when God made Adam and Eve in His image, that wasn't the finished product. In a very real sense, the making of man in God's image was a process and not an event that happened in in the garden. And that image was potential that wasn't fully realized in the garden. And Adam and Eve derailed this whole thing. So what, what did God do? He sent another man. Jesus is called the second Adam. And he took the place that Adam failed to produce. And he fulfilled all of righteousness. And faced every temptation you've ever faced. Every trial, every struggle, every enticement that we've failed at. Jesus passed the test. I've had people tell me, well, pastor, Jesus never struggled with cocaine. Jesus never struggled with online internet pornography. Well, that's true. But he did struggle with the enticement that's behind it. The enticement to to medicate our own pain, to satisfy our lusts as a way of medicating and getting away from the things we don't want and trying to get rid of the things or get, get at the things we do want outside of the will of God. So Jesus fulfilled all of righteousness. He fulfilled every requirement that God had. When, when God said, when, when the, that, that conversation within the Trinity, the Godhead, let us make man in our own image, that word would not return void. When Adam and Eve blew it, God said, I will have that man. And He sent His Son into a, a young woman's womb, her virgin womb, So that he could be born a man and he could face every temptation and he could pass the test. I was telling the Wednesday night crowd, remember years ago reading C.S. Lewis. Many of you are familiar with his writings. I was reading where he said, only Jesus knows temptation. People will complain and say, well, you know, Jesus doesn't understand our modern temptation. And C.S. Lewis proposed that only Jesus really does. Because every one of us we entered into temptation and at some, some area, some, some uh, place, we failed, we jumped off. It's like, it's like a bucking bronco of sin and we got on that thing and it bucked every one of us off. Only Jesus rode that thing to the end and tamed it, threw it to the ground and put his foot on its neck. Jesus is the only one who really knows temptation because he's the only one that went through it all the way and never gave in. Even the death of the cross. He fulfilled all of righteousness. And this whole thing, this whole, this whole idea, this of Jesus developing and fulfilling all of righteousness is where the virgin birth of Christmas connects to the, perf- the perfect sacrifice of Easter. Scripture says that the life is in the blood. We talk about The blood of Jesus paying the price of our sin. The reason the blood of Jesus can pay the price for our sin is because the life that was in the blood of Jesus was not merely innocent blood. It was perfect blood. It was blood. It was a life that had fulfilled every requirement that God had for man. Everything that God would ever want from a a man, from a woman, was in that blood. Jesus had fulfilled it. So in Hebrews chapter 9, when it says that we approach the throne with a bowl of blood, it, he, he, the, the writer of the Hebrews begins to talk about how in the temple, they would, the, the high priest would bring the bowl of blood once a year before the Ark of the Covenant. 
And it was a picture of Jesus as the great high priest carrying his own blood as the lamb and entering into the most holy place, Hebrews 9 says. And Jesus entered the presence of God by virtue of his own righteous life. Never before or since has a man or a woman ever entered God's presence based on the virtue of their own life. He earned the right to step into the presence of a holy God. And now he extends that blood, that life to you and I. So when we talk about entering by the blood of the Lamb, we're entering based upon the life that Jesus lived. It's not, some, uh, it's not, it's not about this, this uh, you know, biological stuff, this, this physical blood. It's the life that is invested in this blood that paid the price for you and I. And so when you and I come before God, we want to worship. I, I, I know when, when I got saved, I came out of a, a lot of garbage, a lot of sin. And even though I got saved as an event, I mean, I got radically saved. I, I really struggled in the first few years of my Christian walk with besetting sin. And as those things began to fall away, and I was no longer falling into doing the wrong things, then the enemy get, began to play on my head and, and leverage condemnation because I wasn't doing enough of the right things. And I would feel like I'm not praying enough and I'm not fasting enough. And if I read the Bible an hour a day, I felt like I needed to read it two hours. If I fasted two days, I felt like I needed to fast three. And I, I got on this treadmill of works, trying to please God, trying to be a better person. And the more I tried, it was like the more I was condemned. Because I was trying to approach God on the wrong ground. And it was during that season, I remember, I hit, I, it was about five years into my walk with God. I was in Bible school. And I remember just... Crashing and burning. And I, I laid down on the floor of my dorm room. And I said, God, I'm done. I thought I was going to go into ministry, but I can't even live the Christian life. I don't have anything left. I guess I only had five years worth of Christianity. I had this twisted view in my mind. And I was just on the floor weeping. And I thought, Lord, I would leave Bible school, but my bills are paid. I got, at least I got free food. I don't know what to do with my life. But I can't live the Christian life. And unbeknownst to me, a buddy of mine had come in and was sitting on the bed. Scared the spit out of me because my room was dark. The curtains were pulled. You know, it was real dramatic. You know, I was, oh, I was crying on the floor. And all of a sudden, my buddy Rich, Rich Green, he pastors over in Coralville now. Rich says, Dave, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm like, it's an angel. No, it was Rich. Yeah. But uh, I'm telling you, that was a word from the Lord to me. And that was the beginning of about a year and a half, two year process of the Lord beginning to explain to me what I just told you. And the Lord beginning to walk me through that Jesus had paid the price for me. That he had, he had fulfilled all of righteousness. And even I was saved by grace through faith, but I remain in, in him by faith through grace. I wasn't saved by works and then I maintain, I mean, saved by faith and then maintain it by works. I'm saved by faith and I maintain it by faith. And God began to set me free. And it was during that time I went, had just, uh, went to work for Teen Challenge. We were over at Berean Assembly of God, going to church over there, sitting on their mauve, I think they got rid of those chairs now, but their mauve, uh, brand new chairs or pink chairs. And we were in worship one night, and I don't remember what I was going through. I was going through a hard time, you know. The wonderful thing about a journey with God is you remember the lessons you picked up, but you don't remember the trial that provided a platform to teach it to you. 
I was going through something and it seemed like a big deal at the time. And I was in worship that night on a Sunday night with all the Teen Challenge students. And we were singing some song and all of a sudden I saw this picture in my mind. At the time I didn't know it was a vision. I didn't know visions work like that. But I saw this picture of this massive room. And I was standing on the outside of it. And it looked like a gymnasium. It was so large. But the floor was this highly polished gold. It was beautiful. And I knew in my spirit intuitively it's the throne room of God. And I felt this invitation come in. And I was so excited by what I was seeing. I wanted to get in there. I wanted to be closer to His presence. And as I began to approach, I looked on the threshold of the floor of that door. And there was blood all across the threshold. And it was just a simple picture the Lord was trying to communicate to me. The only way in is through my blood. That God loves us enough never to give us rest in our own works. If you are approaching God based on your own works, you'll feel good when you're doing good and the enemy will leverage it when you're feeling bad. And when you're doing good, you'll fall into pride. And when you're doing bad, you'll fall into condemnation. And the way off of both of those those places of vulnerability to the enemy is to trust in the finished work of Christ. That He came as a human baby so that He could go through every developmental stage, pass every test, fulfill every righteous requirement that God has for me. And then at the end of His life, when He had the the right, based on His own righteous behavior, to step right into the throne room of God and take His seat at the right hand of the Father, instead, He gave Himself on Calvary for my sin. And so this this life that was poured out for me wasn't merely an innocent life. It was a perfected life. A life that fulfilled every requirement. And when I put my faith in Jesus' finished work, when I say Jesus, I don't understand it all, but I believe that you came and you were born of a virgin. That you lived a righteous life. That you fulfilled every requirement. And that the desire of God, God, in God's heart, when God created mankind so that He could have a larger family, the God of heaven who had one begotten, an only begotten Son, Jesus, wanted many begotten's. He wanted many sons and daughters. He wanted to grow His family because in His heart of hearts, He is a Father. And you can't understand who He is without understanding He is a Father. And when Adam and Eve took that thing off course, he said, I'm going to have to get this done myself. And the father willingly gave his son. And the son willingly came. And even in the manger, there was that shadow of the sacrifice that he would suffer cast upon the manger. When the wise men gave him the myrrh. And it spoke of the sacrifice that he would have to give. And when I believe that and I say, Jesus, I believe that you lived a righteous life on my behalf. And I put my trust in your ability to please the Father for me and not my ability to do so on my own. By faith, the grace of God reaches me and I'm born again. I'm made a partaker of his nature. And I go on the same journey he did. You know, Hebrews chapter 2 says it's fitting that God, that Jesus, for whom and through whom everybody, uh, for whom and through whom God, for whom through whom everybody exists, would make Jesus righteous through suffering. That's what it says. 
that he would perfect Jesus through suffering, it's only fitting. You know why? Because that's the way you and I will be made perfect. I know, more bad news, right? We get saved, we're born again, and God takes us on that journey to grow us up so that we learn obedience, so that his nature and his character come through us. May not be real good news for you and I that we got to go through some suffering to be made perfect, but it's really good news to those who have to live with us. Because as we become more like Jesus, we're a whole lot easier to live with. We go through that process. See, Jesus died as a man to pay the price. He was resurrected as a man so he could extend to us freedom. But here's the thing. Jesus was ascended to the Father and is enthroned this moment as a man so that he could be our intercessor. You know, the ministry of Jesus is not done. Romans 8 is very clear that Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. And it's important that he be a man because only a man can understand what we go through. It says that Jesus is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. I just read it this morning in Psalm 104 that he considers our frame that we are but dust. That's good news. Do you know God takes into consideration that you're a frail human being? Jesus lived the standard for you, but he has mercy until we get there by his grace. And he sits at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. And because he's been through everything we have, he can be an intercessor for us. Jesus is our great high priest. Hebrews says that a priest has to be chosen from among the people so that it can relate with the people. So a priest before God would represent the people and he'd say, have mercy on them, Lord, you know, they're just weak. But before the people, he would stand as God and he would say, obey the Lord. So he was a representative of both. A a priest, in a sense, a priest stands suspended between heaven and earth, representing both to both. To heaven he represents earth, to earth he represents heaven. And Jesus operates as our high priest. He represents you before the Father. You see, He not only lived the life for you, now He's up there praying for you. And He's representing you before the Father and saying, Lord, You know what they're going through. Lord, I've been there. I know how how this affected me. And He's interceding for us. We have an advocate at the right hand of the Father. It's an amazing thing. And He's still a man. He retains that limited that limitation of his humanity. Is he still God? Absolutely. He's, I don't understand how that works. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. That he is absolute God, but he is absolute man. And he has taken on that limitation. If I was Jesus, I think I would have tried to cut a deal. I'd, okay, 33 years and that's my limit. And then I'm taking this earth to suit off. But he still lives as a man. So that he can intercede for us. So that he can have compassion. He can represent us in the right way. It's an amazing thing. And so what we celebrate during this season called Christmas. Where God became a human baby. Was the beginning of our salvation. And just the fact that he took on human flesh sealed the deal. God could no longer forsake humanity. He said, I'm going 
I'm going to so wed myself to them that I can never get rid of them by becoming one of them. And if I were to forsake them, I would have to forsake myself. Some of you have heard this story. I'll close with this. There was a famous missionary. Um, Don Richardson was his name. He wrote a couple of great books. He wrote a book called Eternity in Their Hearts. It's a, it's a phenomenal book. He was a, a sociologist, an anthropologist, and a missionary, a linguist. He, was a, he, was a whole, he had a whole bunch of letters behind his name. Really brainy guy. But uh, he and his family went to work among this tribe of headhunters and they, that were cannibals. They would, uh, you know, eat their enemies. And so he went to try to reach them with the gospel. And the more he got into their culture, the more concerned he became. Because he realized, man, this is, these are some twisted people. When he presented the gospel to them, in the gospel story, Jesus became the laughingstock to them. And Judas was their hero. Because in their culture, the, the, the highest level of respect was given to those who could be the most treacherous. You see, the people that were respected the most would groom their enemies with friendship, sometimes over many years. They would try to secure the trust of their enemies. They would have them over to their place. They'd go out hunting. They would do things with them. And then over time, they would, they would convince their enemy that we are friends over sometimes many years. And then finally, the culmination of this, what would, what would grant them the great respect among their tribe, is one day they would have that friend who is really their enemy over, and they'd all be sitting around laughing, and all of a sudden, all the tribal elders would take out their spears, and they'd revel in the terror in the eyes of the man who realized, I've been taken. They've been grooming me for death all this time. And then they would murder him, and they'd celebrate by eating him. Isn't that a great Christmas story? And so, Don Richardson finds this out about this tribe, and he's thinking, this is not good. You know, I give them the gospel and Judas is the hero and Jesus is the laughing stock. And I'm thinking I might be lunch next week. So he's raising his kids there. And this was a tribe that lived up, up in these tree forts up in the jungle. And Don Richardson was getting ready to, to load up and get out of there before he was the hors d'oeuvres for the next grand celebration, you know. And so they're, they're, they were in the midst of packing up when he heard a commotion down in a clearing below the trees. He looked out the window and he recognized some men from a warring tribe because these, these tribal uh, groups were always at war with each other, always killing each other. But he recognized some of these men he knew were from a warring tribe that were, that were sworn enemies with the tribe he was living with and trying to win. And he, they walked in and they were holding a baby and there was this huge commotion and people started yelling, but it didn't sound like anger. It looked like a celebration. So he quickly climbed down from the tree and, and went to the clearing and he asked them, he said, what's going on? And they said, this is, this is the greatest celebration that we have, the highest festival that we have in our culture. He said, well, what is it? What does it mean? He said, it's the festival of the peace child. This is a celebration. He said, well, what's the peace child? He said, you don't understand. This tribe that we have been war at war with for generations, they've killed us, we've killed them. We've been, we've been blood enemies, sworn enemies. He said, they have brought to us one of their babies. And they've given us one of their own children. And that child is called the peace child. And now they can never be at war with us again. 
Because one of their babies has now become one of our tribe. They're now wed to us. We have become one of them and they have become one of us. It guarantees peace. And of course, you can see where this is going. A little light went off in Don Richardson's head. And he said, well, what would happen if someone killed the peace child? And they were horrified at the thought. They said, that is unthinkable. There is no way that anybody would scorn such an extravagant gift. It it is unimaginable in our culture. And of course, Don Richardson then informed them that their hero in his story, Judas, did just that. That Jesus was God's peace child. And that we were born enemies of God. But what did God do? Did he destroy us like he had every right to do? No. He took his own son, and put him in a vulnerable form, a little baby in a feeding trough to begin this thing called redemption. Jesus is the peace child. And so the question here this morning is, what have you done about it? I don't want to take for granted at this Christmas season that you've Yielded your heart by faith to the peace child. It's not about joining a church. It's not about even saying some prayer. It's about in your heart of hearts saying, I trust what Jesus did. I trust the plan of the Father that he put Jesus in human form and he lived a righteous life and fulfilled every requirement. And I now trust that Jesus makes me righteous to approach the Father. Let's pray. I'm going to ask that every head be bowed. I want to give you an opportunity this morning. Listen, God gave the one thing that He could not reproduce. He could have crucified 10 million angels and made 10 million more. But what Jesus did is He gave His only uncreated Son. The Father willingly gave His Son to be sacrificed and the Son willingly came. And what he asks is that you place your faith in him. And so with every head bowed and every eye closed, if you're here this morning and you have never surrendered your life to Jesus and you're saying, Pastor, I believe. I believe that what Jesus did is enough to satisfy the Father. And I'm willing to take that step. And as as a decision, I place my faith in him. Or maybe... You've made that decision in the past, but you've wandered from it. You were like me. When you got saved, you started to get off track, but you were led astray and you've wandered from the Lord. And you're saying, I'm here this morning and I'm here to recommit my life. I want to put my faith back in Jesus. If either one of those two things this morning, you're saying, I'm going to put my trust in Jesus today. I want you to raise your hand. Just raise your hand right now. I want to give you that opportunity. If you're saying, I'm going to put my faith in Jesus, amen. Anybody else, you can put your hand down. I want us to stand. It's one minute to noon. This is a sign and a wonder, people. (laughs) One minute to noon. I want us to worship this morning. Let's go out singing. Let's go out worshiping the Lord. I'll come back out and close this in a prayer in just a moment. But let's, in light of what we just talked about, Let's thank the Father for sending His Son and let's thank Jesus for willingly coming. Amen? You've been listening to a presentation from Heartland Church in Ankeny, Iowa. For more information about our ministry and its available resources, visit us on the web at 
heartlandchurchonline.com. Thanks for listening.